Welcome to Principles of Faith with Scott Gray. In this teaching series, Scott explores the biblical truth, God's nature is good. here I just challenge you even if even if you don't feel like you're his I just challenge you to for this next few minutes to 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 say Lord I'm yours I just ask you to show me something show me something that may be real about you I'm going to open up my heart I'm going to give you a chance I'm going to take a risk and give you an opportunity to show me. Thank you, Lord, that you will show them. Thank you, Lord, that you love to be challenged to demonstrate your power and your mercy and your love and your goodness. We receive it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, we do have listening guides today. I'm going to ask Ryan, would, uh, would you give some out on this side? And... Dan, would you give these? Those are the old song sheets. Would you pass them out on this side? Thank you. So we are continuing to talk about, look at scriptures that talk about God's good nature. And so you say, well, I don't know if he is good or not. I've always heard that he's a hard taskmaster. Well... That's where I want to challenge you that, you know what? You may not have heard everything accurate about God. Is that possible? (laughs) And is it possible that you might not have experienced God in His fullness? You say, well, Pastor, that's an understatement. (laughs) Of course I haven't. (laughs) Well, I hope that you would say that because none of us have ever truly, fully experienced everything about God. And so... You know, that's, again, where I would challenge you today. If there's things that you have questioned in your mind, things that you've heard all your life, things that would have colored in the picture you have about God, maybe colored it wrong, (laughs) then be open for Him to show you not just what people say or what doctrines say or what denominations say, but what does His Word say about Him? And then not only that, what God are you showing me? What are you speaking to me through your Word, by your Holy Spirit to show me? Because that's what we really need to rely on, right? Because I could get up here and make up all kinds of stuff, and some of it might sound really good. (laughs) And you'd say, boy, that was really, that might be, I don't know if I could say it was really clever or not, but I, I don't know if I'm that creative, but... But it doesn't matter what I say, right? What it matters is what does, what does he say? Just like with creation, you know, we've got all kinds of theories and scientific um, postulates and, and, and theorems and, and all these things. But guess what? They're theories. Did anybody ever properly teach you in school? I don't know if they teach this anymore that evolution is a theory. When I was in school, they used to say the theory of evolution. Now I think they teach it as fact. I'm not sure. But it's a theory. Does that mean it's a truth? No. It's a theory. Why do they say it's a theory? Because some people 
smart people though it may be, well, that might be debatable, I don't know. But anyway, came up with a logical theory of how things may have happened. Well, that's okay. Anybody can come up with a theory. There's no law against that. But guess what? what how, how it really happened, none of us were there. Anybody, did anybody, was anybody living in the beginning that's here? <laughs> no. <laughs> so you don't know by observation, right? So it's a theory that could be argued with any other theory. However, if you are a believer in God and you're one of his children, in other words, you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you've asked him to come into your heart, you've been what we call born again of the Spirit of God, then you have this inside craving to know the truth. And Jesus said that, that he is the way the life and the truth. And so if we follow after him and we pursue him and he sent us his Holy Spirit and he said the Spirit has come to show you the truth and lead you into all the truth, then we need to be pursuing not theories but truth, right? And so we can ask and trust the Holy Spirit to open up the truth to us and help us to discern the difference between what's theory and what's truth. What's doctrine versus what is God's nature? Some of that hopefully lines up. But if it doesn't, you have to make a decision. And whether you consciously make the decision or not, you're making the decision. And that decision is, am I going to go with theory, what I believed or what I've heard people say or what people have, have theorized or doctrines they've come up with? Or am I going to go, if there's conflict between the two, with God's Word? And that's a decision you have to make. And like I said, whether you consciously speak or say you're going to make that decision or not, you make it by what you choose to believe. And so, I didn't plan to go there with all of that explanation, but it's a, it's a little bit of a backdrop or an explanation on why, we, why do we need to study God's nature? Because if you really want to understand God in your life, and at some point in your life, no matter who you are, no matter whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, no matter what you pursue or don't pursue, at some point in your life before you die, you're going to want, you're going to have some need to know even if it's just to clear your own mind, who is God? And, and how, what is my relation, position to Him? I kind of believe that everybody, <laughs> hopefully it's not as late as their deathbed, but at some point in, in their lifespan, come to the point where that question is burning in their mind and in their heart. Well, what about, what if, what if there is a God? What if He does really exist? Because if He doesn't, you don't have anything to lose, right? But if He does and you didn't know Him or understand Him, you have everything to lose. So, people come to that point. 
Some you know about, some you don't know about. But they come to that point, and at that point, that's all that really matters. And at that point, there's a need to know the real truth, not opinions, not philosophies, not theories, but the real truth. And so, this is why we're studying God's nature. We're only studying one aspect of His nature. We, we could spend years <laughs> on different qualities of God's personality, or his, we could say His character, right? What is His character? There's different aspects of His character. His nature, how He acts, what motivates Him. And so, but what we really need to, to know is, God, show us who you really are. There's plenty of opinions, like I said. You could ask 100 people on the street, and you probably get close to 100 different answers. But they're just opinions, right? It's not God telling you. So we need to go back to what, what He shows us of Himself what he chose to reveal about himself, what he says about himself, what he demonstrated that's recorded in a historical book that's accepted as a historical book, but it's more than that. It's also been proven to be one of the most accurate books in history. Even that lines up with secular history and natural uh, laws of science and nature. It is proven to be one, if not the most, well, it is the most accurate, but even man has shown that it is. So we should go to that, right? We should pursue the real truth, not what people have said, not what we've believed, not what churches say or theologians say. And so anyway, so that's why we've been probably didn't give you the why, but that's the why behind all this for the first time. That's why we're looking at what scriptures say and show to us, stories in the Bible have shown us about what God says about himself, what people who interacted with him saw in him, what he demonstrated about himself. And so you'll see on your, on your sheet there that some of these text scriptures we've been using, I'll just remind you of these. Psalm 25, 8, and there's plenty more. These were just the initial ones that kind of started all this off. 25, 8 says, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 34, 8 says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. This gets back to what I was challenging you today. Can you just give him a half hour, an hour, and say, Lord, would you show me something? Would you show me or speak to me about whether or not you're good or about your goodness? He's saying, oh, taste and see. Just sample. Take a bite. Take a chance. And then in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus was talking about comparing us to God and how we don't even compare to His goodness, but yet we do good things. I heard several testimonies or prayer requests in here when we, when we had that time in the, in, earlier in the service. A lot of it was focused on our children going back to school, issues they're going through, whether or not they have friendships and, and are, are getting in and, and getting along and having fulfillment in their life. We care about our kids, don't we? And yet Jesus said, you, how many of you 
If your child would ask for, for bread, would give him a stone or give him a serpent, you wouldn't do that. But you, being evil <laughs> in comparison to God, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those that ask? Which, which we say the Holy Spirit and to people brush by. What that means is really giving His own self, His own presence into you to walk with you and guide you and lead you and speak to you. That's, that's more than bread, right? If you eat bread, you've got to eat again, right? <laughs> you want another meal. Probably in a few hours. <laughs> At least I do. I like the three squares a day. Or water. You'll want to drink again. But God will give you His presence on the inside that you'll never have to ask for. That's what Jesus was comparing. You, even though you are by nature evil... So well, I'm not evil. Well, if we went back and read Genesis, we'd prove that's wrong. You are. You're born into it. You can't help it. But God, how much better is He? And then Jesus said in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18, that when they tried to call Him good, He said, no, He said, there's only one good, and that's God. He wasn't saying He wasn't good because He was God, but He laid down His deity, right? To become like a man. But he said there's only one true good or source of goodness. That's God alone. And then we um, have, have talked about a couple of, well, one verse that David said in the Psalms 16.2. That he said, I have no good besides you, God. And then he also said, I came across this verse um, a few days ago. He said in, in Psalm 14.3, there is no one who does good, not even one. David said, talking about people in comparison to God. And so God is good. And David acknowledged the goodness that was in him. The source of it was only God. It wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't cook it up. Even though his parents may have raised him right, and I believe they did raise him pretty good, but they weren't the source of the goodness that came out of David. How do we know David was good? Well, God himself said, he's a man after my own heart. And so, but David acknowledged where that came from. So we looked at all these scriptures in the Old Testament. Well, we don't have time to go back over these, but they're there again for you. I keep putting these on the sheet every week now that we have a sheet again so that you have them for reference. You don't have to go pull out all the old ones. You've got all the scriptures that we've looked at. And um, so we looked at a lot of these in the Old uh, Covenant part of the Bible that talk about God and His goodness and and how in the Psalms David talked about it, and, and um, in Isaiah. And then, and then we started looking at Jesus in the New Testament, and how when he came, God announced that it was his goodness toward men. And then we talked about Jesus and his will to heal. Even, in the, even in the, at the risk of persecution, to heal on the Sabbath day, when the Pharisees and the scribes and tried to make it out that it was against the law or something, which it really wasn't. Uh, but even then, he, was, he loved so much that he was willing to heal people, even if, they, if he got persecuted for it. And then we started just looking at, at scriptures where Jesus himself either demonstrated or talked about the goodness of God, or, whether he, or where he demonstrated himself the, the goodness in him that reflect the nature of the Father and reflect his goodness. So we didn't get very far the last two weeks um, but we're going to pick up with that. And so today I want you to look in, in Luke chapter 15.
And there's some parables that Jesus told. And he told these parables to, t- to explain to them about the love of the Father or what the Father was like and how he would pursue us and that that would, that would tell a story about his goodness, right? And so there's three parables that he tells in succession in Luke 15. And, and we may not read all of these, but, but these are important because Jesus told these for that reason. So it would be important for us, if Jesus told something to explain something to us, would it be important for us to look at it a little more closely? Yeah, because remember, this is Jesus, <laughs> okay? So, in Luke 15, the first one he talks about is the lost sheep. And so, he introduces this, though, in the first three verses as to why he's telling these stories. He says, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, wow. Terrible, terrible, right? Um, so he told them this parable saying, and this is the first one starting in verse 3. And so he starts telling about a man that had a hundred sheep and one of them was lost and he left the 99 to go look, at the hun- to look for the hundredth one, the one that was lost. You know the story, you've heard it before, right? Or have you heard of it at least? And so when you get down to... to um, Verse 5, and when he had found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I mean, he's got 99, if, even if he never found this one. Why is he so excited about this one? See, that's the question that this story answers. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. Now, somebody might say, well, after he found this sheep, How many did he have? He had the same number he had before, right? It's not like it's some great, huge, earth-shattering story, right? And maybe that's what the friends thought. They're like, "Um, you're having a party and you're rejoicing. You got the same sheep you had. What's the deal? But look at the excitement on this man. He put it on his shoulders. He was happy. He came home together with his friends and neighbors, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I tell you, Jesus said in verse 7, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Can you see something in this? You know God's not interested in the numbers. He's not interested in ratios per se or percentages of how many people want to be his children or become his children. Everyone is important. Have you ever pictured, instead of picturing God with a long beard and a pointed finger with lightning bolts coming out and a scowl look on his face... Have you ever pictured him as this man who's carrying a sheep on his shoulders, running home with the sheep on his shoulders, excited, and throws a party with his neighbors? And, And then picture yourself as that sheep? 
You ever thought of that? That's, that's the kind of father he is. He actually loves his children. There's a lot of good fathers that love their children today, but there's also a lot of absentee fathers that don't even know their children or their children don't know them today. God is not an absentee father. He does not abandon his children. He does not just send child support once in a while and hope that it's enough for you to get by. He loves you. He's excited about you. Some people say it's like he's got your picture in his wallet. And he shows it everywhere he goes. All right, that's one story. Okay, let's look at the second one. Verse 8, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one, does not light a lamp and sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one who repents. You ever thought about heaven rejoicing? What, what, makes, what makes things have celebration in heaven? Now they're constantly, we read over in Revelation, constantly saying holy, holy, holy before God's throne. But do you know when the, all of heaven, including the angels, rejoice? It's when somebody asks God to be their Father and Jesus to be their Lord and becomes one of His adopted children. That's when they have a party. Do you think Jesus would know what's accurate about heaven? Didn't He come from there? Wasn't He there in the beginning? Go read in Genesis. I think He would know what to, what to tell us is going on. Alright? This is the one you really need to get, the third one. Probably most of you have heard the story. And a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Okay? So we know the story. Two sons. The one came up and wanted his inheritance early. Because he wanted to leave. And he wanted to go use it. And then you know the story. He went into another country. He squandered all the money his father gave him. His half of the inheritance. Wasted it all. Lost it all. Ended up living with pigs. Feeding pigs. Eating what pigs ate. And was basically starving and destitute. And then he finally thought. And you can read it in here. Well, you know, even the servants in my father's house... They had better than this. They didn't eat pig slop. They had clothes and food. I could go back if I went back and just asked, could I be a hired hand at my father's estate and I could be better off than I am today. So he decided he'd go home and ask, beg for mercy and ask if he could just work there. Not a son, just be a worker. Okay? So that's the setting, right? And so... In verse 18, he said, I'll get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So he's rehearsing what he's going to say before he gets here. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. 
So he got up, verse 20, and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Now, we stop right there. Did, the father, did they have texts, texting back then? Was he able to text home and say, I'm, I'm going to be on my way home, sorry it's your son, but I'll talk to you when I get there? No. Did they have telegraphs? Messages. We're going back to the 1800s now. Did they even have that back then? No. They might have had carrier pigeons. I don't know. But I don't, it doesn't say he sent a message home, does it? So isn't it strange that not knowing where he was or, or that he was on his way home, the father was out looking for him from a distance. Now just keep that in mind. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. We said it's strange that he would have been looking for him. But not only was he looking for him, when he saw him, what was his reaction? Well, I'll tell you, when he gets over here, I'm going to, tell, I'm going to give him what's for and he better not be asking me for anything. I've already given him all of his inheritance and he better not come begging for something else. Scoundrel. Is that how the, what the father was watching for to say? Now what did he do? He didn't even just stand there and wait. He, could, he couldn't wait. What did he do? He went and ran after him. And not only did he run after him, And he wasn't running after him, so, well, let me just wait before he even gets here. I'll head him off. I'm going to let him have it. Is that what he did? No, what did he do? He embraced him and kissed him. So, but now, wait a minute. The son hadn't even apologized yet. How did he know that the son was going to come and say, Father, I'm sorry I've sinned against you and against heaven and... And I've wasted all this. And could I not be a son, but could I just be a worker? He didn't know he was going to say any of that, did he? Had he talked to him? Where he said they didn't send messages. How, he, he, he didn't even know what he was going to say, did he? But yet he ran after him, embraced him, hugged him, and kissed him. Wow. And then the son said to him, Father, here's the rehearsed speech. I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, he didn't, wait a minute, he didn't even get to finish the speech. Because if you go back up, it said there was more to it, right? The father just interrupted and said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger. Now you know what the ring meant, don't you? It wasn't just so he would say, well, I want my son to wear jewelry. No, that wasn't it. The ring was like the debit card. The ring had the signet of the father's estate, the father's wealth. The ring meant you can now purchase things in the father's name. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Now wait a minute. The son still hadn't finished the speech. He's still waiting to finish the speech and the apology. 
And, and the father's not even talking to him. He's talking to all the slaves and giving orders and doing all this stuff to, to go and take care of him. And then what did he say in verse 24? For this son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost and he's been found. And they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. The father didn't even really know what was in the son's heart. Right? Because he didn't even get to finish his speech. And he, it sounded like he wasn't really paying attention to much of it. The, the party did get out. He was more interested that he was home. And, and getting all the stuff to put back on him and, and to get him back in his place as his child. And then not only that, not to fix things, but to have a party over it. Kill the fatted calf. Let's celebrate. Did you know none of, there was, there was no, we don't even see any, other than the son trying to start his apology, we don't even see any reciprocity here from the, from the son. It, this was unilateral reaction, right, from the father. It wasn't based on, well, now, okay, you're home, but let me lay down some ground rules here because, you know, if you'll do this, 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 and the other, you can stay. Does that sound familiar? And, and as long as you do that and abide by the house rules, then uh, we'll let you come back in. Now, I'm not saying there can't be wisdom in that because you're, you're not God. But, but Jesus was telling this story to tell us about the Father and the Father's heart. Is this not an overwhelming story, an overwhelming reaction? Does this go way beyond what's natural human behavior? Yes. Way beyond. This is the type of love that most people don't even experience, don't have, don't experience, don't even comprehend. This is the kind of love and goodness that blows your mind. But yet, Jesus is giving us a picture of his Father. Is that not awesome? This one story, if you knew nothing else about the character and the nature of God than hearing this one story, if you believed it, would be enough for you to understand who God is. It's an awesome, awesome story. But yet there was others. And so, what do these parables tell us about God's nature? Did we see in any of these three stories wrath? Did we see in any of these three stories God doing evil to anybody? Did we see in these three stories even just simple justice? No, they went beyond what was just and right. In, in human eyes. Did we see in any of these stories just simple parental love? No, it went way beyond that. Way beyond that. Excitement, overwhelming love and goodness. And you say, well, it's not that simple. The Bible talks about times where there's God's wrath and He gets angry. Yeah, I said we're going to talk about that. Just keep coming. 
Keep coming. We get, we get through the, the scriptures on the goodness of God. We're going, we're going to spend at least one day on God's anger and when he gets angry and why. He has a temper, by the way. We've talked about that the last two weeks. Why would we think he has a temper? Because you have one and he created you in his image. So you have the same capabilities that he does. If you have a temper, he's got a temper. The only difference is, is he knows how to use his. And he keeps his. You ever lost yours? <laughs> Means you lost control of it? He never loses control. We're going to talk about that. It all fits together. Just stay tuned. Keep your seatbelt on. But there's a balance in it. And the overwhelming part of the balance is the love and goodness of God. Remember, we went back to Genesis. Everything he created, he said, and it is good. And, and he put man and woman in a perfect environment and intended for them to stay there and multiply and rule and have dominion over the earth. Who messed it up? Man messed it up. Say, well, the devil. <laughs> and I appreciate what Beverly said at the beginning about the devil, but I also appreciate she said at the beginning, there's things that we need to check that we've either done or not done first. Don't, don't give the devil too much glory. Don't blame him for everything. Not that it's wrong to overblame him, I guess, because he's worthy of all <laughs> that and then some, but... Yeah, the devil was there and he tempted Eve, but they had to decide to fall to the temptation, didn't they? And go with it. So, we're going to get, we're going to, get to that if we get that far today. Anyway, yes, there is anger. There is what's called the wrath of God. But he doesn't have it in mind for you. You are like the prodigal son. You're like the lost coin. You're like the lost sheep. And Jesus said, and we read in these verses last week, He said, I am the good, what? Shepherd. And He cares for the sheep. He said it over and over again. I am the good shepherd. Alright, look in um, Luke chapter 12. And we're going to look at a few verses here. Verses 6 and 7. Are not, this is Jesus talking. Are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So even something as common as a sparrow which is one of the most common birds. And, and here he's just relating that people don't value sparrows very much. Do any of you value sparrows? Do you even think about sparrows that much? Unless you see them in the winter and you may throw out a few breadcrumbs. I don't know of anybody that has a sparrow ministry. We don't value sparrows that much. But Jesus is comparing that even they, God knows about all of them. But yet, even though he does that, every one of your hairs are numbered. Now, some of you are like, yeah, I know when number whatever fell out because that was one of the highest last number. No, 
God knows all the, He knows all the hairs on your head. That's how, you ever, remember when, you're, when your kids were little, maybe when they were babies or, or when they were little and going outside and all, and you, you come in and, or, or when they were just starting to first grow hair, <laughs> you know, most babies are kind of bald when they're born and then they lose what little bit they had and then the hair starts coming back and you're all excited because they're getting hair. You kids are like, wow, really? <laughs> you did that? Yeah, we'd be like talking to each other. Look, their hair's coming in. Aren't they cute? And I remember one of mine had fluffy little hair. And I would rock him and his hair would do like this. And I thought that was the greatest thing. Anyway, but as much as we act like that, or when they grow up and they start playing outside and they come in from the woods or the trees, what you start looking to make sure there's no ticks in their hair, right? And stuff. And you search them all over. Well, think about you doing that. But think about God who does that and even more. He knows every hair. Just like, just like the, the father of the prodigal son. He was over the top. That's just how God is. If you're excited about your kids and their hair, God goes for even further. He knows everyone on every person. How can he know that? We think about computers, supercomputers, probably couldn't even account for all that. Do you know that God, supercomputers are nothing to God? He has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom. So you remember the video we saw at the beginning? All the intricacy of how it all works together in every form of life, in, in community, in harmony. Okay, that's beyond supercomputing, Right? Anyway, that defines right there. Then go over to chapter 19. It's another familiar story, probably, to some of you. If you, if you went to Sunday school when you were a little kid, and I remember in, in like vacation Bible school, it seemed like every year there was always a night on Zacchaeus or something, and we'd do these little cutout figures of Zacchaeus in the tree, and, or you do the... Fe- okay, we didn't have computers and, and videos back then. We had... What they call them? The felt boards and what would you call it? Huh? Flannel boards, right. The flannel graphs, okay. And there was always flannel graphs of Zacchaeus and the sycamore tree, okay. But, but have you ever thought too deeply about the story of Zacchaeus? And, and it says in the beginning of 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus and he was a chief tax collector. Boy, he was popular, wasn't he? <laughs> He was not only a tax collector, which all the Jews hated, he was the chief tax collector for that area. And he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, and for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. Boy, that just probably ticked them all off. Here's the guy who everybody hated in the whole area. Worked for the Romans. And he's the one that Jesus singled out. Passing by, looked up in the tree and saw him and said, Hey, Zacchaeus. Hey, come on down because I got to go to your house today. And I bet you that the, the leaders of the synagogue 
and, and the people who were most excited about the, the Jesus ministry or campaign coming through town, they were all hoping, Jesus is going to come to my house. If he comes to anybody's house, he's coming to mine. And whose house does he want to go to but that old rotten chief tax collector? What a rub. <laughs> he's not even going to have lunch with the church people. Huh. So look what happens. There's a reason. And so, when he heard and came down, he received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble. I've said that. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, if, probably the people around him will say, if, <laughs> if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Now, if Jesus would have gone and had lunch with the church people who probably picked it up at KFC or something along the way, because they'd been in church, they didn't have time to fix food. Instead of going to Zacchaeus, who probably rolled out the red carpet because here, here was Jesus, the great prophet, coming to his house, and everybody hated him, so he would have probably thought Jesus would too. And then he had Jesus in, and... and it really touched him, didn't it? He changed. It made a difference in his life. Can you see the reason why Jesus would have went to his house instead of the synagogue leader's house or the Pharisee's house? Because something happened there. In verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Remember the three parables? The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And Jesus is saying then here about himself. He was telling that about the nature of the Father. Now he's making it personal to himself. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. See, Jesus knew the Father, knows the Father better than any of us because He was with Him in the beginning. And Jesus came to show us the Father. I mean, that's why He came to earth, was to show us the Father and to make a way for us to know the Father and know Him. And so, here He is demonstrating, just like in His stories, He tells about the shepherd, the woman who lost the coin, and the father who had lost the son, Jesus is now demonstrating that in his own actions and showing us that same nature and love of God that he was telling us about that the Father had. I am come to seek and to save that which was lost. All right, look in Luke 23, verse 34. This is when Jesus was dying on the cross. Don't you remember that before he was crucified, he was not only persecuted in, the, in this fake mock trial that they held, and then they sent him to Pilate, and Pilate sent him to Herod. They all mocked him and made fun of him, persecuted him. Then Herod sent him back to Pilate. Then the Jews forced Pilate to put a sentence of death on him. And then not only that, but in the midst of all that, remember the torture they did to him. 
ripped his flesh to shreds, beat him, put a crown of thorns that pierced his head and his skull, and then nailed him to the cross. So this is, this is where we're at when Jesus makes this statement I'm about to read to you. Verse 34. But Jesus was saying, this is when he was dying on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Is that not a highest example of, of love for Jesus to say that? But have you ever thought, and you may be very familiar with this verse, but have you ever thought not only is that great love for Jesus to say that with what he was going through, but have you ever thought about his understanding of the Father that the Father would even consider forgiving what these people have just done to his only son? Do you think Jesus knew the Father well enough, knew His mission well enough, but also knew the, the loving, good nature of God well enough to know that He could ask God that this was something that was possible, that His Father could forgive even this? The greatest offense against God that had ever been. And Jesus knew Him well enough to say, Father, would you forgive Him? Expecting him to do it. And guess what? Here's the good news. He did. <laughs> and not only them, us who were never even born yet. And made the way for us to not only be forgiven, but, but to come, become equal children of his with Jesus. Doesn't the Bible say, what do you mean equal? Doesn't the Bible say that we're not only heirs with Christ, we're joint heirs. Joint means equal party. If you have a joint checking account, who owns the checking account? Just you? No, both of you. You own it jointly. Can either one draw the money out? Yep, all you got to do is write a check. So, well, if I didn't get the other one's permission, well, it's joint. It doesn't matter. It's equal. He made you a joint heir with He not only forgave you and allowed you to be adopted into His family, He made you a joint heir with His only, at that time, only begotten Son. Now, it's, now the, after this, do you know after this, the Bible calls Jesus the first begotten, not the only begotten? Why? Because we are the other begottens after this. Joint heirs with Jesus. Forgiven, adopted in, but made a full heir. Is that not goodness? Could you not see goodness in that? We've talked many times about adopted children and adopted parents. In most cases, the children should feel even more loved because you didn't just come into the family naturally. Somebody went and pursued you, went out of their way to adopt you, had to go to court and get papers signed, had to, in most cases today, spend a lot of money to do it. Now, we know instances where those parents don't always treat those kids as, as equal to their natural children, but that's, that's human nature. That's not God's nature. 
God goes to all the trouble to adopt you, get the paper signed, go to court, put his name on the line, and then he makes you equal and treats you equal and loves you so much that your hairs are numbered on the top of your head. That he would make a party when you, because you came to him and it received his adoption. That all of his kingdom would rejoice when you accepted does he not love his adopted children? He's crazy about them. He's absolutely crazy about them. How could that not be a good God? Thank you for joining us today. This God message is, is brought to you by Pope Church. God is good all the time. If you would like more information about all the Pope time, Church or to listen to more, please go to www. .hopechurchnc.org That's www.hopechurchnc.org